the West Coast, the East Coast, and deep in the heart of Texas, it's the Geek at Arms podcast with Brian, Mike, and James. Greetings, everyone. Welcome to the latest episode of the Geek at Arms podcast, a podcast about three guys who share a lot of geeky interest and also a love for the Lord our God. I'm James, and hanging out with me, as always, are my good friends, Brian and Mike. Mike, how are you doing tonight? Good, sir. I'm doing well. Um, the kids are off visiting Grandma and Grandpa, and my wife is off doing a retreat at a monastery, so I've got a couple of days to do all those things that I love to do, like laundry and packing. So, you know. <laughs> you know, normal adult hobbies. Right. Yeah, with three kids, laundry has no longer become something that you have to do. It's become a hobby. It's become a lifestyle. <laughs> I think that that is just the Sisyphean challenge of adulthood. You push that rock up at the top of that hill, and just when you think you're about ready to be done with laundry, kerblam, you're hit with more laundry. I was thinking of it last night. I was thinking of the age I will be when my children have either grown up enough to be off at college or at least out of my house, and I'm not having to worry about either doing their laundry or pressuring them to do their laundry and I just kind of stopped and crumpled on my front porch and had a little cry. Oh, dude, and you don't, you're not even doing cloth diapers. That was that was a challenge when we had both kids in cloth diapers. Laundry was a way of life. Yeah, that's because I decided I didn't want to pull out what's left of my hair. <laughs> so what about you, Brian? How are things? Recursion is hard. <laughs> Explain. I've been doing some uh, programming at work, and I need a a function that goes through and finds like the endpoint of a, a structure of folders and then decides which ones it wants to delete. And in order to do that, you use this process called recursion, which is the function runs and it calls itself with like a smaller set. And then that calls itself again with an even smaller set. And then it gets out to the end and it unwinds all the way back out to the beginning. And just trying to wrap my brain around how to get that done is just been messing with me for like the last two weeks. Okay, I'm I'm trying to imagine what you just described, and let me be the one to say, well, thanks everyone for joining us for episode 21 of the Geek at Arms podcast. <laughs> we'll see you next time. We're Brian, Mike, and James. You know, you know those Russian nesting dolls. It's like that, except that you don't know how many of them are inside it until you actually start taking it apart, and it could change every time you do it. Oh, see, this is and why you Russian... can't decide what the one on the outside looks like until you've seen the one on the inside. So, Mike, what Brian is saying is that since starting this project, he started drinking a lot of vodka. <laughs> when he opens that one vodka bottle, there's a smaller vodka bottle in it. And... <laughs> I, I know a little bit of Russian, but none of the small phrases that I know are applicable to this conversation. <laughs> so I'm just going to say, because that's the one I like the most. Well, you made you, it sound good. Yeah, now you have to tell us what it means. <laughs> it means I'm very no, pleased to make your acquaintance. Title. Oh, <laughs> like I said, it doesn't apply, but you know, it sounds nice. So what about you, James? How are you? Oh, dude, I'm really glad to be recording with you guys. It's been a week. Um, oh. It's had its highs. It's had its lows. And I'm glad to just have a little bit of time to catch up, chat with friends about geeky stuff in our lives. Well, we're glad that you're doing it, too. So on that note, let's get to Geek Out. Who wants to go first? I'll go. Anybody who's listened to my Geek Outs in the past knows that I am, I 
really am fond of saving the game. And uh, a fellow Christian podcast that deals with tabletop role-playing and collaborative storytelling. And we just had a release of episode 155. I say we because Brian and I were invited, so graciously invited to co-host on the show as we talked about unwritten rules at the gaming table. Mm-hmm. And I have to say that was so much fun recording with those people. They are, first of all, they're amazing people. They have a great show. But getting the five of us together felt like it's five robot lions combining to form Bolton. <laughs> the geekiest defenders of the internet. <laughs> I have been listening to the podcast since it came out recently, and I'm not all the way through it yet, but you guys killed it. It sounded like so much fun. Listeners, I wasn't able to join because of the time of the recording. It conflicted with work. Um, Mike, I've got to say, it took me a few moments to recognize that you were you on the show because however yeah. it was you recorded that, your voice did not sound like you. It's funny i had the same experience i listened to it in in my car as i was driving to an appointment after work and i heard this voice come over from the right hand side of the the car and i'm like who's that oh that is me <laughs> uh, i think that I... there's we had a different recording method so there's an application on my pc that was capturing my voice a little bit differently than the way that we come through and yeah, I don't know. And and it might have also been that I was in a different headspace that day. Okay. The only way I really knew that it was you was when you started talking. And I know how you talk. You know, after 21 episodes with you and knowing you for years, I know how you talk. I know your inflection, your sentence structure and style. And, okay, th- that is Mike. But it's like Mike's twin brother from, from Greece. <laughs> I didn't know I had a little bit of Greek in me. <laughs> oh, doing that accent the entire time was maybe not the best idea. Yeah, I mean, my, and I think I had a poor accent coach. I, I got Matthew Broderick to, to coach me on accent. and <laughs> Well, that's a mistake because he took Kevin Costner's class on foreign accents. Oh, you beat me to that one. <laughs> that is in my notes. This will be explained later, listeners. <laughs> What's funny is that it was really easy to get engaged in in listening to the podcast. And I was like, wow, that is a really good point that Grant is making. I am so glad that I am listening to this and I've downloaded this. Holy crap. No, I haven't downloaded this. I'm recording. I can jump (laughs) in here. (laughs) Besides you not sounding like yourself, Mike, the only other thing I would say is directed at Brian. And that is, how dare you point out that I bring my own spotlight to a game, good sir. I I resemble that remark. (laughs) Yeah, everybody who does that knows who they are. (laughs) Yeah, it made me smile and laugh. And, And you know what? I'm not the only one out there. And the thing is, I've tried to play characters which are just kind of mellow and low key and those who might be meek and mild in the in-game world. I don't know. Sometimes it just gets away from me. <laughs> well, I mean, look, if if this if playing this type of character is fun, then play that type of character. Yeah. I mean, there's no shame in that. And I've, yeah. I've gamed with you, and 
there isn't a problem with you bringing your own spotlight. Yeah. It means that no one has to work to make sure that you feel included. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You don't ever take over the game, not in any game that I've ever been there. And in fact, I think that there was one one time that we were that we were playing back and forth when we were kind of the opposite of upstaging each other. We were bringing something up so that the next person could set up the next one upsmanship, but also handing the baton back and forth. Like this is this takes what you said or did and raises it up one here's the baton back and it went back and forth. And so I think that brings a really healthy game dynamic, but it's also something that I have to be aware of that I tend to bring a big personality into a lot of games, but I need to be conscious of handing that spotlight over to somebody else as well. And it's something I've had for me, that's something that I've had to work at. I have to watch myself uh, as well because even in real life, I'm the type of person that if no one else is stepping up to lead, then I will step up to lead. And so sometimes I find myself doing that in role-playing game scenarios as well. And I have to remind myself, okay, I've had my moment. I've had my say. Others are doing this as well who have good ideas, good strengths, probably even better than mine. I need to be silent, have my moment, and then step back. Whereas... I will often take the back seat, but I recognize that occasionally I have to verbally tackle James in order to get things to, to uh, go the way I'd like them to go. <laughs> and I think we could probably do an entire Geek at Arms episode on how have we grown into our role-playing styles. Huh, that so, would be interesting. I don't know. That would mean that I would actually have to be doing more role-playing because <laughs> in the last... Uh, Ten years, not a whole lot of that's been going on. Yeah, you it is difficult to do at this stage in life. Yeah. You have a daughter. She's how old? She is almost seven. Oh, yeah. It's fine. It's fine. What you do is you get you make up a character sheet of six attributes, three skills per attribute, give her a 2D6 plus modifier, and ask her how does she want to play make-believe. And you're set. You're GMing and you're playing again. Darling, this week we're going to be playing a new game. Can you pronounce it for me? Sure, Daddy. Call of Cthulhu. Cthulhu. Yes. <laughs> you know, like, my, no, Daddy. Might as well deep dive right in. He's like, no, <laughs> what we're playing is Pirate Tea Party. I bring the pirates. You be the ship that has the tea. <laughs> I like it. The next thing that I wanted to bring up for my geek out was the show Good Omens. Have either of you seen the Amazon Prime or, if you are a conservative Christian group trying to get it shut down, Netflix series? (laughs) No, I haven't taken the time yet. Uh, I haven't had the time either. Oh, man. I have to tell you that this is such a wonderful adaptation of the Terry Pratchett and Neil Gaiman book. The level of detail that Neil Gaiman has put into his research is just absolutely delicious, as it always is. He's obviously a really big buff on religion and mythology and or religious mythology and has a wonderful way of weaving that into interesting stories. And he has done exactly that with several components of Good Omens. 
There are things that never came to the page, but they have to be represented on screen. And one of the first things that captured my attention was as Aziraphale is handing off his sword, the flaming sword of the Garden of Eden, it's a Bronze Age weapon. And that just did my heart so good, because one of the things that I keep saying to people is that these images that we have of biblical figures in biblical times is shaped by our history and the art we've been exposed to. And I'm sure many people imagine the flaming sword as a 15th or 13th century cruciform blade made of steel and so forth, or at least of a length that could only be steel or usable only once item. And so to see a Bronze Age sword was something that was from the era in which the pen was first put to paper for for this narrative. And that was such a delicious detail that I absolutely loved. But if that sword was put into place before Adam and Eve had even invented clothes, isn't it still anachronistic? Everything is anachronistic <laughs> about, <laughs> about the, the Genesis narrative. I mean, even if you read the creation narratives, if you read chapters one and two back to back, when land and water was on the earth was anachronistic. So, <laughs> like, which timeline do you want to go with? You know, Brian, you um, actually make an interesting point. Maybe it was the angel with the flaming sword standing at the garden that first gave mankind the idea of a sword. Ah, how do well, we know he didn't invent the thing? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Here's your Star Trek for reference. <laughs> and, and in a shock twist, the sword was actually made out of transparent aluminum. <laughs> <laughs> I just think the show came together so well, especially in the characters of Crowley and Aziraphale. I mean, they were the real stars of the show. I think that when Adam and his friends were on the screen, the performances were, were lackluster compared to David Tennant and Michael Sheen. But, I mean, when you have such, such wonderful star power there, I mean, that, that's, it's hard not to be upstaged. I think that there were some things that weren't done quite as well. Uh, mostly dealing with Adam and, and his friends. I think that they got melodramatic at some point, and they were trying to convey visually some of the things that were on the page in the minds of his friends. But overall, I have to say that the adaptations that they made were so right for the medium that after the climax of the show, they get another climax for these star figures that we've been mostly attached to, they have a, I'm not going to spoil it, but they have a wonderful scene where they are visually pulling together so many, so many elements of the book of Revelation, where you have the Antichrist, you have the beast, you have the four horsemen of the apocalypse, the four opposing horsemen, you have the two witnesses, you even have the whore of Babylon, and the scene just flows so well and so humorously, and it was just delightful fiction based in the in the narratives that our religion has. And I, I thought that it was a fabulous job. Now, like Brian, I have not seen the show yet. I'll admit when I first heard of it and heard the premise, you know, an angel and demon who have become friends over the centuries joined together once more to stop the apocalypse. I'm like, eh, I don't know. And then I read that they were being played by David Tennant and Michael Sheen, and I thought, hmm, you, you had my curiosity, but now you have my interest. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if you're embracing this as fiction, then, you know, have fun with it. I mean, there's nothing that I found to be distasteful. It's contemporary modern fiction. 
the show is not for everyone. Certainly there will be people that will that will find it distasteful that there is fiction created in the space that they that they have read as sacred literature and expounding on that sacred literature to create this interesting story. If you have a more complex angelology and demonology than the scripture does, which is pretty much any at all, and you hold that to be very dearly important, then maybe this is a pass for you. But if you don't mind seeing a fictional representation that isn't written by a Christian, but I still think is respectful of the source material, then I think that you should enjoy this. One thing that I appreciated about, I read the book uh, years ago, and uh, I appreciated the way Gaiman's influence really reined back uh, Pratchett's tendency to be anti-religious. Um, some of the Pratchett that I've read is just, it's felt insulting to me as, as a person of faith that he thinks that people who are Christians are idiots, honestly, or thought, I guess he's no longer with us. But uh, Gaiman's got a more reasoned and a more respectful outlook, and I think that came through in the novel. I'm looking forward to seeing the show. Yeah, I'm not familiar with Pratchett's work other than We Free Men, and I would not have gathered that from from this text or from the series. And that'll wrap it up for my geek out. I will go next. For the first part of my geek out, it can be wrapped up in one giant capitalized word, and that is Godzilla. <laughs> How'd you like it? I absolutely loved it. As I talked about in the last episode, my friend Michael, a.k.a. Godwin, came up from San Antonio, and we saw it together. I bought the tickets. He bought the food. It was a fantastic sequel to the 2014 Godzilla that really expanded the whole monster world that uh, they are trying to build. Uh, both of us had, I, I call them, squee moments where you, you, know, <laughs> you see something great on the screen. You just kind of sit in your chair and go, squee, because it was so great. One of them was when I realized that there were a pair of Asian twins in the movie, which ties in very closely to the monster Mothra and its history and its lore. There is a, a moment where Godzilla has been given a little bit of help. This isn't really giving any spoilers besides the movie's been out for nearly a month. And it rises up from the ocean, standing in front of this submarine that surfaced with a lot of the main characters. And the music was directly from the 1956 Godzilla movie. And, of course, it had been modernized just a little bit, but it was, was straight from that. And it fit the scene so perfect, so beautifully. Several of the classic Toho monsters from the uh, from the Godzilla films showed up in this movie, and the modern reimaging was great. Uh, Mothra, King Ghidorah, Rodan, and uh, there's hints at even more. Uh, of course, we saw snippets of King Kong towards the end of the movie, and in March of next year, we'll have Godzilla versus Kong. Because, you know, Godzilla movies are great, but we live in an age where we have huge special effect monster-type movies, extravaganzas all the time. I was worried about how much money this movie was going to make, how it would resonate with people who weren't the big kaiju fans like myself and Michael are. And because, let's face it, no matter how great the movie is, if it doesn't make money, that's the end of it. Mm -hmm. So I, I did some looking on Box Office Mojo, and it opened up to like $43 million. Which is which is okay, but its its budget was 170, 
So I was really worried about, you know, is this is this thing going to have ah, legs? It's lower than I would have expected, considering that it was what it was. Yeah, same here. I was expecting more along the lines of a budget of $250 million. Yeah, I'd have said 230 But as of right now, when we're recording this podcast, it has a domestic total of $103 million. That really made me worried because, you know, that's not even making its budget back. But then I thought, wait a minute, this is about a monster from Japan. I need <laughs> to check the foreign box office. And, uh, and how to do foreign total uh, over two hundred sixty three million. So yeah, we're fine. Yeah, we're fine. <laughs> it's blowing up across. I mean, in China alone, it's just huge. China and Japan. So uh, I, th- I think we're okay. Oh, I hear it. I hear it's crushing it in Tokyo. <laughs> oh gosh. <laughs> oh, so well, it really did feel like a love letter to Godzilla fans. Um, I got to see it in a, a pre release screening two days before the official release and there were just cheers throughout the the theater at several junctions yeah the people who made this you could tell that they were fans of the genre they really cared about it they made it for people who were fans but i feel like they also made it for people who just love big fun monster movies Mm -hmm. and as far as i'm concerned it succeeded at all points and i really hope we get to see more in this they have official name for it, like this this monster verse, monster world that they have made, because there's a lot of potential. Uh, but other than Godzilla, my family and I got a chance to go out and do something recently at a local university. There was a small uh, comic book convention called ArlingCon, being hosted by the Arlington Public Library. Took my family, and it was a fun, free family outing. To use a little bit of alliteration there, and. Uh, <laughs> It was fun. Our local SCA group was there doing a demo. They had several tables of displays, and they did a fighting demo as well. A nice-sized vendor hall. They had an artist area, which I wanted to look more through, but it wasn't really stroller-friendly, so I gave up on that one real quick. (laughs) A lot of cosplay. Some of it was what you would expect for a very small university convention. Some of it was really on point. I saw a Iron Man costume with movable parts, the mask, uh, part of the back plates and arm plates. Everything was lit up. It was very well done. And with him was a gentleman in a in-game era Captain America costume. Looked really good. And there was more as well. Uh, the Rebel Legion was there, the Imperial 501st. There was a Doctor Who cosplay group, a Mandalorian Star Wars Mandalorian cosplay group and more there had tables set up uh, letting people know what they were what they were about. An entire Mandalorian cosplay group sounds pretty amazing. It drew my interest and I'm like, okay, that actually does look pretty cool. <laughs> I, I wouldn't mind having one of those. So yeah, I mean for being a free con, it was great. Kudos to the Arlington Public Library and the university who put it on. They did a fantastic job. And uh, for my final bit of geek out, I have just finished watching all of the current episodes of My Hero Academia uh, Ah. on Brian's recommendation. And I got to say, it was a lot of fun. It's a good show. It is. uh, I will admit I watched the dubs because I don't feel like reading when I watch sometimes. Mm -hmm. So I've seen this uh, genre style of show. I don't want to call it. I guess you could call it a trope even. It's a world where everybody has, or almost everybody has, a type of power as a superhero or a quirk, as they call it in this show. But none of them were really this much fun. 
there was a great cast of characters. None of them were the same. Um, I loved the variety of youngsters with a variety of powers that they showed. I mean, from the girl who is pink with antenna who can shoot acid out of her hands to the dude with a tail and the other who can shoot tape out of his elbows. <laughs> it's like they had uh, dartboards with powers and inanimate objects, and they just started throwing darts. Okay, this one's going to have tape from his elbows. This one's going to have uh, super hard skin. This one can talk to animals, but his face looks like Mount Rushmore. And that the writers managed to come up with clever and powerful uses of what seemed like just ridiculous superpowers is really impressive to me. I agree. I also want to comment on the voice work. The dubbing is really good. Mm -hmm. My only gripe with the show has to do with a specific character. And that is the character of, I think it's Kashan. Mm -hmm. And the reason he really bugs me, and in fact at one point I had to stop watching the show, was because this is a character who is an unapologetic, rampant bully. Mm -hmm. mm. He makes no excuses for it either. And all of it is centered upon who we see as the main character of the show. And it really bothered me because they make this character, this young boy who we come to know as Deku. And this character who bullies him, he thinks that this guy walks on the clouds. That he is just the greatest. And this boy does nothing but put him down. And at one point in an early episode, actually encourages him to commit suicide. Whoa. And it never ends. Not even when the young boy Deku gets powers of his own gets himself into the hero school and makes himself as much or more of a, it makes himself an equal to the bully. The bully still sees him as nothing but a dork and a loser and a zero and tells him that to his face. How far have you gotten into the show? Have you gotten through the end of it or well, the existing end of it yet? Yes, I have. So you see at least there, they take that someplace, maybe not in makes it completely satisfying, but I think it's going someplace interesting. One of my problems is that the issue of bullying is never addressed. It's ignored by the friends, and it's also ignored by the teachers and the adult figures around. And yeah, that he, bothers me, too. He's dismissed as having anger issues, just a, a troublesome but strong in spirit for and wanting to succeed hard. And he's given a free pass because he's, he has a strong power. Yeah, it, it really I mean, bothered me that he's clearly a sociopath. And yet nobody is giving him any kind of, like, therapy or anything. I mean, is it bothersome because it's too true? Or is it bothersome because it's too too unrealistic? I mean, no. narratively, we want to see the satisfying end of him getting nailed on it. But, I mean, the bullies that yeah. I know that are succeeding in the professional world are given a pass because, well, they have this other quality that we that, like. So we overlook is, the rest. That is what is happening. In my opinion, that is what is happening is because he has this great power, which could be of great use to the heroes. And everyone thinks, oh, he'll make a fantastic hero one day. He's super strong. His behavior and his treatment of this boy named Deku is being ignored and he's being given the pass. And because yeah. of it, this bully clearly has a sense. He, he talks several times. He has a sense of entitlement. And he talks about how he's the worthy one. He's the one who's special. This other boy is just dirt. And it's not fair that this other boy has suddenly got all this power. I think what they're doing is they're kind of sacrificing some thematic opportunities in order to give Deku some characterization opportunities, which, frankly, he doesn't need. I think everybody watching the show respects Deku and sees how much of a hero he is. He, do he doesn't need that extra foil. No. 
he's proved it enough to himself and everyone else. Him constantly saying, I'm going to keep training hard to reach your level and beat you one day. It's been done. We've, mm-hmm. we've, that theme is from seasons ago. You've grown. It's time to move past it. But all that to say, overall, though, it has still been a joy to watch. That's just being my one gripe of it. And it's super easy to binge. I mean, every episode leaves, left me wanting to know immediately what happens next. That's exactly how I was. It was like eating popcorn with these. Just, oh, there's another one. Uh-huh. I'll have another one. Oh, but just one more. <laughs> oh, it's 3 a.m.? What happened? <laughs> <laughs> so that will wrap it up for me. Uh, Brian, we'll pass it on to you. Well, first of all, I was very delighted to see that a, uh, a webcomic that I like a lot, which has been in hiatus for months, uh, has finally started uh, Yale Stewart's JL8. It's the Justice League in which I love that all, comic. <laughs> all of the characters that of the Justice League are in like first grade. And it's he has got such a a strong grasp of who the characters are and what motivates them. I mean, way better than most of the, the actual comic writers that I've seen handle the characters. And it's it's touching, it's hilarious, it's very, very well drawn. The guy's a fantastic artist. And I was I was tickled to see that he's finally started picking up his pen again, and he's is doing more work. Um, he's one of the very few people on Patreon that I support, not because I want the bonuses that come from Patreon, but just because this guy needs to be making art. And if there's anything that I can do to help that happen, I am just I'm really proud to be contributing to that. So if you've never read JL8, find it. It's it's fantastic, and there's just not enough of it yet. I agree completely. One of my favorite strips is a Spider-Man movie had just come out. And Batman is walking down the hall, and Superman's (laughs) flying next to him. And Batman's got his fingers in the classic Spider-Man shooting his web uh, form. He's going, pew, pew. And Superman's, what are you doing? And Batman's like, I'm being Spider-Man. And Superman Uh goes, oh. And he gets down right beside him does the same thing. Pew, 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 pew. There's little Superman, little Batman playing being Spider-Man. Yeah, it's, it's it's a great strip. I'm really looking forward to seeing where it's going. He had a uh, a table at a, a comic convention uh, recently in which he did some... I don't know if the poster was specifically for that convention, but it was a limited edition thing. I almost I almost thought about ordering one. And the title was... I think it was For Whom the Bell Dings. And it's the first panel is all of the the heroes in their, their hero poses uh, rushing to somewhere. And the next panel is the ice cream truck. <laughs> <laughs> it's really great. Yeah, Mike, I don't know how much you are into web comics, but you got to check it out. It sounds great. Uh, let's see. And James, you had ordered me some months ago that when Vader Immortal came out that I had to get it and play it. And I have been obedient. As soon as it was it was available for the Oculus Rift, I got it. And it's a good experience. It's really cool. Uh, pause for one yeah. moment. I'm going to text the sharpshooter and have you taken off the list. <laughs> <laughs> well done, Brian. Uh, well done. <laughs> it's a nice experience. It's uh, moderately interactive. I mean, it's got a very linear story, um, and at some points it pauses for you to do stuff. So you're, uh, it starts out you're, you're in a spaceship, and you've got to flip some switches to jump to light speed, do some diagnostics while you're on your way. And I won't give away any more of the story than that, uh, except to say that the the lightsaber combat is... Not quite what I wanted, but it's pretty close. 
and you know just being able to hold the lightsaber and swing it around and the woo 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 uh the effects on it are pretty good so that's what i've heard is that just the the ability to wield the lightsaber and the almost musical quality that it has as you are freely able to use it is just an amazing experience Mm-hmm. And it's got a uh, a dojo mode in which you can fight against some robots. You got the little uh, the drones that shoot lasers, and you've got some other robots that have lightsabers of their own that you've got to fight with. And that's been a lot of fun just playing with that. Except I I have a tendency to swing that lightsaber too hard, and I kind of tweaked my shoulder a little bit. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Don't do it too hard because that would be an embarrassing visit to the doctor. Exactly. How did you injure your shoulder? Uh, lightsaber. It's a video game injury. <laughs> Son, this is L.A. That's nothing new. Yeah. Speaking of which, and of lightsabers, I've also been playing a game called Beat Saber, which is kind of like Dance Dance Revolution in VR with lightsabers. I've seen some YouTube videos of this. Okay. Oh, it is so much fun, and it's a great cardio workout. <laughs> really? <laughs> I mean, I get done playing that game, and I'm like just like drenched in sweat and my heart going. <laughs> it is a lot of fun. And just, you know, you've got a uh, saber in each hand, which, honestly, Invader Immortal, I was like, ah, I missed my oh. left-hand saber. <laughs> I've seen this. Yeah, so uh, holding two at a time, that's got to take, and the directions they make you go, because it's like, the left hand is going left, the right hand's going right, and then one's going up, one going down, in beat with these squares that are flying at you. That's got to take some serious concentration. Oh, yeah, it does. It's it's intense, and you start turning up the the speed and the difficulty, and you get into this, this, this zone where you're not looking at anything in particular. You're just kind of got the thousand-yard stare, and everything's in the peripheral vision, and the hands are going, and you're just moving on instinct, and it's just... It's a really great experience. I, I really love that game. Man, um, I, you've really got me wanting an Oculus Rift now. <laughs> I don't have money for an Oculus Rift. Well, the uh, I don't have money for vision care, so I mean, the yeah. Oculus. Is... And I was I kind of in the early, not the early, early adopter camp, but early enough that uh, I've got the older Rift that doesn't quite have as much uh, resolution, and now they've come out with two more versions of the oculus one of them is wireless tethered it's still tethered to the computer but it's wireless and then they've got another one that's got the computer included in the visor which i don't know mine is is hot enough i can't imagine having a a gpu actually like strapped to my face that's got to get so warm (laughs) but they've got even higher resolution and nicer optics and it's like man i really wish i could justify spending another 300 dollars to buy another vr visor but I've got this one and it works okay. I just need like uh, an extension cable so that I stop getting my arm wrapped up in the cord when I'm swinging my lightsabers around. <laughs> <laughs> There's there have been a couple of times that I was like yanks the visor off my head because literally my you you go left with the the, the arm and you, then you've got to hit a, a box that's above your head and then you come back down the other side and soon before you know it you've got that cord wrapped around your arm and then you go for for one that's kind of far away and the visor just comes right off oh no it's like i get it tangled in my foot and i'm like falling over i gave my uh my printer a good hard smack i laid open my uh my knuckles swinging a little bit too uh enthusiastically at one point the, the neighbors below you are hearing the ruckus and like oh ray's fighting darth vader again <laughs> right. 
Now, I have a question for you about the Oculus Rift and the headset experience. My question kind of goes back to a, a conversation we had in an earlier episode about 3D glasses and their effect upon me. Have you mm-hmm. ever come off of an extended session with your Oculus Rift and had a headache? Um, I get a little bit of eye strain occasionally, but I have yet to have it activate a headache. Um, okay. I'm actually extremely well adapted to uh, stereoscopy and uh, for some reason wearing contact lenses. When I when I got to, to get my contact lenses tested, they, they said, okay, well, we're going to just try a different brand in each eye and we'll see which one your eye likes better. And they popped in and he's like, wow, these both fit perfectly on your eyes. We're going to try a couple more. And they put two more in. It's like, those also fit perfectly. It's like, you are, you are like genetically designed to wear contacts. And yet your eyes are so bad. <laughs> yeah, they, they really are. I don't think I, my astigmatism has gotten worse. And so I don't think the contacts would work as well for me anymore, but I've never had any trouble, uh, looking at a stereo movie um i can do the the cross-eyed viewing thing where if i've got a stereo image on my my screen i can fuse it effortless effort effortlessly that's a difficult word to say um i can do those those magic eye things where there's like a hidden picture in the swirls i can do those really well so i'm probably not the best person to ask about whether or not the oculus is comfortable because i can spend two hours in the thing matter of fact the other day i've I got done with a, a round of Beat Saber. I sat down on my chair, which is kind of difficult to find your chair when you can't actually see the room that you're in. <laughs> um, I keep trying to sit on like the virtual chairs in my home space, and that doesn't work. We should say, oh, that doesn't actually exist. Um, Brian, how'd you break your tailbone? I don't want to talk about it. <laughs> but I'll sit down and I'll, I'll just call up my virtual desktop and I find myself like I spent 45 minutes just scrolling through Twitter in VR. It's like there's not a VR version of Twitter. It's just my desktop floating in space. But I spend like and I realize I still got a headset on and I'm looking at Twitter. This is ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> so, no, I don't particularly have problems, but I know that there are people that do. I'd say if you have a friend or if I happen to be in Wichita and have mine with me again, give it a try. Play a couple rounds of Beat Saber or something and see if it not when you're going to have to drive anywhere because it might activate a migraine for you. I know that you're sensitive to those. But, you know, if it doesn't, if it's something that you find is comfortable and you can do it, then, oh, it's so much fun. The driving while wearing VR is something that I really want to be a reality because, you know what, we have remote (laughs) control cars. We have 360-degree cameras. We have we have VR headsets. Why can't we play Mario Kart for real with, with RC cars? <laughs> this, this needs to be a thing. Well, see, now, I, I think it would be fun to do that with, like, the augmented reality. Like, they've got the, the Magic Leap glasses now that are coming out. You just be able oh. to put on some augmented reality turtle shells while you're driving. That would be fun. <laughs> that could be a – I mean, that could actually be a thing. Mm-hmm. I think it would probably be uh, a, a bad idea, but it would be a fun idea. <laughs> imagine there would be an awful lot of accidents happening. Well, I would imagine that you would do that at an RC park or like at a remote control, oh, like a, yeah. a controlled oh, environment. That would be awesome. So, Go karts with augmented reality. Oh man, I want to build that park. <laughs> the insurance would have to be insane. Like. This is why I say RC is because as soon as you strap a headset on the public and then set them at it, then you know they're <laughs> they're going to wreck each other, the cars, and the VR sets. 
Did you ever watch uh, Better Off Ted? Comedy no, TV I did show? not. There was a scene where uh, they've invented a jetpack. It's it's about this uh, kind of dysfunctional research and development uh, corporation, and they're the two goofy scientists in the, in the basement. They've invented their jetpack, and they say, jetpacks are the dream of every scientist. Imagine hundreds of ordinary citizens flitting about at 60 miles an hour in any direction. <laughs> a lot of people are going to die. <laughs> It's a great show. I think you'd enjoy it. You should. Uh, I think it's on. Uh, yeah. It's on Prime, uh, and lamentably, there's only two seasons of it. I think it was canceled way too early. But it's a it's a fun show. I mean, just <sighs> the idea of jetpacked anyway. The glute burns are are just going to be unreal. I mean, you'd have to wear asbestos <laughs> underwear for that to be a viable idea. <laughs> There's a uh, a video I saw recently. I didn't actually watch it. It was just linked to me, and I haven't gotten around to, to looking at it yet. Adam Savage built a titanium Iron Man suit with a jetpack built into it that actually flies. Like I keep meaning oh, to go geez. back and watch that thing. That would be cool. See, this is kind of what I imagined that 2019 was going to be like. Like, okay, we've got androids. We've got flying cars. We've invented jetpacks and hoverboards. No, where are we in 2019? Look, people, the Earth is not flat. <laughs> it is not flat. Yeah, it's an interesting world we live in, isn't it? Last thing that I have to say that I'm geeking out about is I'm finally getting to play a role-playing game. Uh, well, lead another role-playing game, because I very seldom get to play. Uh, we're going to be starting an actual play podcast using Primetime Adventures that... I imagine we're going to be syndicating through Geek at Arms. Uh, not entirely sure how that's going to work quite yet, and we don't have a name for it, but it's going to be fun. Kind of a yeah. toy story meets Call of Cthulhu. Got some players who uh, you've never heard their voices on this podcast before, so that'll be fun also. I'm really looking forward to it. Yeah, I was taking a look at the players that you have, and I saw that you have the first episode for us to listen to. I have yet to be able to listen to that, but I'm really looking forward to... Actually, there's a couple of people in there that I'm really looking forward to hearing their voices again. For those who aren't aware, which is probably almost everybody, uh, the way Primetime Adventures works is you don't start the game knowing what it's going to be about. So the, the session zero that we've recorded was actually creating the game on the fly as as we play, generating the characters, generating the world. And I, as the game master, had no idea what we were going to come, come up with. I went in with only a couple of preconceived notions. I knew that Joel was going to say something about time travel because Joel is nuts for time travel, and so am I. But every idea that they came up with was just a little off the wall and really interesting. Uh, and where we wound up landing on the whole thing was... It's going to be a heck of a lot of fun. And we're taking it in a, a nice, conservative five episodes. So given that we're probably going to be recording about once a month, that means six months of game. And then when we get to the end of it, either the story will be wrapped up or, you know, we extend it for another season. But, you know, I hope that it's something that people enjoy listening to. I know I'm certainly going to enjoy playing it. I wanted to offer, Brian, I know this is your baby and, something that you have been uh, working a lot on, but if you need any help with editing the audio, getting it prepped for broadcast or for podcast form, I would certainly be happy to help. I may take you up on that. And I'll probably also take you up on uh, 
the offer that you haven't made yet to make some interstitials and maybe a commercial. Done and done. <laughs> well, that brings me to the end of my geek out. And that will take us to the third movie in our fantasy film club. This one is one I have been waiting to do for a long time. And that is the 1985 medieval fantasy film Lady Hawk. Just watched it recently. I know you guys did as well. And I got to say, there were a lot of times I was going, man, why did I wait this long to watch this movie again? And there were other times I said, wow, that's why I waited this long to watch this movie again. (laughs) Something about just the general quality of the film is that it leaves it as no mystery to me why this is a cult classic. It is readily apparent to me why this doesn't have broad appeal, but those elements that were good are things that really incline me to understand why those who love it absolutely love it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, we have a structure to this film that, to the film discussion that Brian has, has put forward. I have that structure in front of me. Brian, did you want to lead this discussion or? No, why don't you go ahead and moderate it this time? Sure. Now we've, we've reviewed a number of films in the fantasy genre and we've discussed a number of important ideas of fantasy when we did Willow. So we're not going to rehash those elements of fantasy in broadly. So let's just ask the first question about this film specifically. What influence did this film have on others that followed it? The one that comes to mind first is a single parallel that this movie shares with another medieval semi-fantasy movie that came out closer to today, and that is A Knight's Tale. (laughs) That's exactly the one I was thinking of, too. And that is that we have a medieval setting. We have knights, we have lords, we have kings, peasants, horses, fighting swords, but we also have a modern soundtrack. Now, in A Knight's Tale, you get a a great soundtrack with songs from Queen, and these songs really fit the mood and the scenes that they were put in. The start of a jousting tournament, and you hear, we will rock you. The end, where the hero has finally won, he's gotten the girl, and it's we are the champions. The boys are back in town. So many more great songs. In this one, it's... I know the soundtrack was written or was done by... It wasn't somebody that I recognized, and his IMDb was awfully lean. Yeah. I've got it. Hang on. I do know that it was recorded, supposedly, by the London Philharmonic, Mm -hmm. but it sounded like it was recorded in a dude named Dwayne's Garage on his (laughs) electric keyboard and synthesizer. It was very much music of its time. As soon as I saw... well. As soon as I heard the guitar riff, I was just dazzled with how 1980s the opening yes. credits were. Like, even if IMDb didn't tell me that this was made in 1985, the way that the <laughs> opening credits were shot and the soundtrack told me that it was 1985. Now, according to the Wikipedia page, the score was composed by Andrew Powell and produced by Alan Parsons of the band The Alan Parsons Project. <laughs> Which really, that says it all. That says it all right there. To the film's credit, though the the opening credits were really jarring with the music, I didn't find that the that the music was disruptive to the rest of the film. I think that it it fit fairly well enough. Once we had it established, this is what we're doing. 
it seemed to, to meld pretty well. I'm sorry, but there were more than a few scenes that we go from character moments or combat, the, the plot has progressed, and then we get scenes of writing or of traveling, and suddenly, boom, switch to synthesized keyboard and music, and it was jarring to me. I mean, completely yeah. took me out of the mood of the movie and removed me from the moment. We talk a lot about how a soundtrack can make or break a movie. And there were more than a few moments that, honestly, the soundtrack broke it for me. Yep, I agree. And this is a Richard Donner film. And Donner's previous work includes Superman. So how do you go from John Williams' Superman score to whatever you want to call Lady Hawks? That's the only uh, thing John I can Williams think is that there was available. some studio interference there. It was somebody's nephew. John Williams took a look at the script and he said, no, I want nothing to do with this. No, no, I'm done. Yeah. So Michelle Pfeiffer turns into a bird and I'm out. <laughs> Does she stay a bird after production? No, <laughs> never mind. <laughs> so the next question that we have is what source material went into this film? You know, I couldn't put my... Uh my finger on it really it feels like a very classic fairy tale-esque story but yeah. i can't really identify any specific myth or fairy tale that it comes from which is weird oh my gosh i had the same experience i went looking i looked for direct influences i started doing some online research and it was it was one of those things that i i thought for sure there are some fairy tales that that somehow mirror this where even even that maybe somebody is a lover is turned into a tree and that the two are side by side for the rest of eternity always just barely apart but always there together but as much as i felt like that was a a motif or some theme i couldn't find anything directly but what i did turn up is that the marketing team had put this forth as a as a medieval legend but the producer, or maybe it was the writer and director, one of the two, actually raised a lawsuit about the marketing team putting that statement into the materials that it was a medieval legend because he knew that he did not want that as part of a selling of the film, that it wasn't a medieval legend. It just seemed to fit the idea of one, or at least our concept of one, so well. It's so much like one that you expect that it has to be. It's like, oh, well, this is obviously the story of... No, this isn't anybody's story at yeah. all. This is something completely original that feels so faithful to the idea of we medieval have, myth. That... Well, we have so many fairy tales that include someone who has been turned into an animal is turned back by the power of true love or love's first kiss. I mean, there's the swan princess, the prince who was turned into a frog, Beauty and the Beast, and more. And so mm -hmm. this, the idea of two lovers... One is a wolf by night and the other is a hawk by day. It fits just enough into that mold that you think that oh, this has got to be based on an ancient myth that I'm, I'm sure I've read somewhere. Mm -hmm. Right. Now, there there is certainly some uh, Fritz Lieber in the uh, character of Mouse. He is very much a stereotypical D&D &D rogue. <laughs> yes. So you've got at least that as, as background, but the the curse itself is curiously original or at least as far as anyone can make out right richard donner has some secret book of medieval myths and legends that he hasn't shared with the rest of the world 
<laughs> or perhaps we're just not well read enough. I mean, I, I mean, it, that's always a, it's always a possibility. And cat, you are biting my hand. Stop it. <laughs> yeah, that is a possibility. Yeah, he is an idiot. Okay. <laughs> Okay, next question. Tad Cooper, I will punt you into the sun. Knock it off. <laughs> I you... did want to say one other thing about the legacy. You're awesome, Tad Cooper. <laughs> James mentioned the uh, the parallel with the Knight's Tale and the music, but the thing that actually reminded me the most of the Knight's Tale was riding the horse inside the church. Yes. <laughs> and I must add, I think the real star of this movie is the horse Goliath. Oh, gosh, that horse was he that took me out of it a number of places like, OK, horse, stop the prancing. You are not in a show. You're supposed to be a war horse. You leave him <laughs> alone. He is glorious. <laughs> it's like, oh, man, this horse is such a prima donna. <laughs> <laughs> He's getting exactly the attention he deserves. All right. <laughs> not going to be having any hate for him on this podcast. I do want to give credit to, I tried to look up if it was Rutger Hauer who was writing him the entire time, including all of the prancing and the sidestepping and all of the horsemanship, or if that was a stunt writer. I really wanted to be Rutger Hauer because that would be fantastic, but I know in my heart it's <laughs> probably a stunt writer. Rutger Hauer does have quite an extensive experience with horses. Now, how much of the film was actually him on the horse, I don't know. But what I can tell you is during filming, right when Mouse was, was given Goliath and said, you know, take her to, to Imperius and, and get her to a doctor. That needs looked at. Uh, <laughs> the idea was that they were supposed to put Matthew Broderick on the horse and then they were going to cut away to him, to him arriving. Well, instead, Rutger Hauer, knowing that Matthew Broderick had never been on a horse before, decided to play a practical joke and slapped Goliath on the flank as he took <laughs> off. And Matthew Broderick had no control oh of the situation. They, they had to get a jeep to catch up with him a mile and a half later when the horse decided he was done. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> And that's when Matthew Breyer decided, I need a day off. Wait, maybe I could turn this into a movie. Oh. Oh. All right. Uh, let's see if we have any more specific observations about the acting, the stage dress, the costumes, the visual effects. I'd like to Plus. say a little bit about the cinematography. This movie is a weird combination of absolutely gorgeous shots and really really horrible day for night processing oh my god yeah this movie suffered from a lot of like 1940s and 50s night in blue era type mm -hmm. of shooting it's like you know it's nighttime because everything's blue it's like wow this is a really really well lit forest at night <laughs> and yet they they showed storaro obviously can shoot at night because the scene in the castle when they're they're approaching near the end is beautifully shot at night and it looks great so why in the world were all of these forest shots done with a day for night that just was not working mm -mm. maybe they were running short on their filming schedule and they yeah it I had to know. have been a budget thing yeah, slap a blue filter on front of the camera and let's get this thing going 
because night shoots are more expensive. Uh, you've got to pay all the crew over time and so forth. But still, the end result was just undercut the entire movie for me. See, this is weird because once I knew what they were doing, I knew what they were doing instantly. My thought was, okay, they're doing a day for night thing. I'll accept it. Let's move on. I guess that's my visual effects artist eye where it's like, oh, gosh, that's got to be fixed. Yeah. Oh, no, that photography cannot be fixed. There's nothing that you can do to that that's going to make it look good. <laughs> now, Burn I, the film, and Nick will call it good. Uh, yeah, you're right. Does anyone have an idea about where this movie was shot? My first thought was, this looks very Italy. Tuscan. It was Italy? Yeah, it okay. was Italy. I'm very jealous about the landscape and the castle they got to shoot in. Oh, yeah. That's that just cool not castle. fair. <laughs> it was a very loud castle, too, whenever that horse was riding across the drawbridge. Of course, to be fair, metal horseshoes on cobblestone and brick is very loud. Yeah, but I, I kind of think that the sound mixer was uh, had a, a incorrect idea of what was important, the dialogue or the sound of this horse's hooves. Well, apparently on IMDb, the guy who was sound mixing was also in charge of the nighttime shooting, so <laughs> there you go. Was he also in charge of the drinks mixing and cement mixing? Just asking. <laughs> And running that optical or that digital character generator for the opening title sequence. Oh, gosh. Look, I can make the letters move sideways. We're going to do it on every single title. Oh, hooray. <laughs> we learned a new thing. Speaking of uh, digital I effects, would... uh, Brian, I was curious about your take on the few transformation scenes we get from wolf to human, <sighs> but mostly the ones we see of human to hawk. Shooting a lot of light at the lens is no substitute for planning what it is that you want it to look like. They were all, it's like they didn't really have an idea how they wanted to do it. And so they just like, okay, well, let's cut a lot of shots together and we'll, we'll dissolve something kind of haphazardly and we'll throw a lot of light at the lens and maybe the audience will forgive us. It's like, ah, they should have all been like eight seconds long instead of 45 seconds long. There was one that was almost great and that was where rutger hauer is running at the camera and he's he's pulling off his shirt and there's this this log in the foreground and if he had dropped behind that log and we see the the wolf pop up from behind it that would have been great but instead they did a dissolve and he's like he's not quite got his clothes off and he just kind of fades out and then the wolf pops up it's like oh man that was almost wonderful see it really but does not quite it really does feel like this is kind of an area they skimped at that this was mm -hmm. effects done on a budget. Well, and things like his, his contacts when he's turning from the wolf back to man, and they put these brilliant green slit eye contacts in. It's like, uh, why has he got cat's eyes? Yeah. Wolves have round pupils. Yeah, well, wolves are canines. <laughs> they're, they're not cats. And you've got the wolf there on set. You can see that his eyes are brown. <laughs> <laughs> now, see, I know the movie had a budget of just $20 million. Now, true, in 1985, 20 million went a lot farther than it does today. But still, it feels like they could have made a few smarter choices. Yeah, and the technology wasn't there to do uh, morphs like Willow did a couple years later. So I can forgive that they didn't have the technology to do great transformations. But that doesn't mean that they couldn't at least think ahead and plan the transformations a little bit better so that they'd, they'd sell on camera. Mm -hmm. There are easier ways to cheat. Yeah. Talk about transformations taking too long. The scene where... Uh, Michelle Pfeiffer's character is hanging you know, by a thread from the castle wall, and mm -hmm. she starts to fall just as the sun peaks up. After about the 20th second, 
of this transformation. Like, wow, that really was a lot farther down than I thought it was. Yeah, if they had done yeah. just like a, a two-second dissolve on the eye, and then you see the hawk flying away, that would have been glorious. That would have been perfect. But no, it's like, oh, she's screaming for a really long time. <laughs> I found myself comparing the length of that to the length of time that it took when the next transformation that we see her, when she is actually laying next to the wolf. And it was a very sweet, tender moment. The music on that part was good, where mm-hmm. he has changed from a from a wolf to a man, and they see each other in that few seconds of morning light before she turns from a woman back to a hawk. And I'm thinking, okay, all right. And she still hasn't changed yet, and she'd be dead. <laughs> so apparently there is no fixed time. So it's, uh, right. it's her plot armor is dependent on... It's uh, magic. Yes, magic. There are a couple of other elements that I, I wanted to touch on. We've, we've made allusion to it. But I'm just going to come right out and say it. Matthew Broderick's accent seemed to have some heavy influences on Kevin Costner and Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. Mm-hmm. And I found a note in IMDb, and because of Matthew Broderick's performance, he was even brought in as a dialect coach for Keanu Reeves in preparation for Bram Stoker's Dracula. Well, whatever class was being taught, Michelle Pfeiffer completely skipped it. To be fair, they would have been speaking French, so there's no possible reason why a lot of people speaking French would have English accents. That was so my Broderick as, as was just as fact, valid as anybody else's. I mean, and that is a valid point. The next question. Yeah, is that why is it that in France we're, we're speaking with English accents? I mean, I'm going to look to the future, like far future, to answer this question and hit up Jean-Luc Picard to see what answer <laughs> there might be. Well, I can, I can forgive Picard because at least he was probably given English classes, you know, and from probably a British person. He wasn't speaking French on the Enterprise, probably. Who knows what they were speaking in the Federation? Maybe it was like Andorian or or something. We don't know. We do get a couple of French words the Enterprise does not translate. Um, yeah. But I'm <laughs> not going to say tosses. that French word. Yeah. I was actually, I hadn't picked up on that until I watched uh, The Next Generation the most recent time, where Jordy realizes, oh, no, we asked the computer to give an opponent that Data couldn't beat. And Picard just cusses. <laughs> it's like, because he yeah. realizes instantly what happened. It was like, oh, you know, I never picked up on that before. His pardon my French is actually French you'd have to pardon even on network television. I think nowadays <laughs> you can get away with it, but not not when they were filming. Yeah. But we're talking about Lady Hawk. <laughs> right. So speaking of France, the stage dress was fine for pseudo historical fantasy. To a point. This thing, yeah. I mean, it's, it is not historical armor. Uh, I want to talk I about don't... the armor for two seconds. Okay. The apple slicer he had on his face? The medieval... No, it's not even medieval armor. The fantasy no. armor that they were yeah. wearing made me angry. <laughs> I, I, I was, was thinking that the whole time. I'm like, man, James is going to hate this armor. <laughs> The moment I saw it on screen, I loathed it. I wanted I wanted to meet the costume director who was in charge of designing this, wave my hand back and forth quickly and tell him, put your face in there. <laughs> it's not armor. It's not even plot-based armor because no. somebody literally trips and falls on a sword and he gets impaled. Yeah. Uh, it, like- it is tunics. It is tea tunics. With 
soda pop tabs glued on. And don't even get me started on the helmets. I have seen <laughs> soup strainers, which could take a sword shot better than those helmets. Yeah, but they show the faces of the actors so nicely. I'm done. I'm done talking about it. I'm moving on. <laughs> yeah. On a side I note, though. I decided that it was not worth paying attention no. to. I, at that point, I decided I'm not going to look at the armor. I'm not going to focus on it. I'm not going to get to this movie if I, if I don't do that. It made the anachronistic Zweihander easier to swallow, though. <sighs> I'll tell you what, the swords I found a lot more believable than the armor. The... I found Patrick Roderick's accent to be more believable. That's not, <laughs> not a <laughs> I mean, we saw a lot of medieval-esque-looking longswords. Two-handed, the pommels were correct, the crossguard looked good, the lengths weren't that bad. We really didn't see any scabbards. Just guys <laughs> had them thrust through their belts. And we also saw everyone using them one-handed. I'm like, um, okay. And just like with The Seventh Voyage of Sinbad, we saw some very bright, shiny aluminum swords from time <laughs> to time. But Rutger Hauer's Germanic greatsword, not that far-fetched. I mean, I've seen pieces in the Royal Armory and at the Tower of London, which, honestly, if you threw that in there with them, I wouldn't bat an eye. Mm-hmm. It was just a couple centuries in the yeah out of place. place. Yes, although at first I was trying to figure out if this movie was supposed to actually take place on Earth or in a fantasy world, because for a while they don't say where any of them are from. That's true. They it, make allusions to it. All of the names are French. They make yeah. a, an allusion to a French city, uh, Navarre, Philippe oh. Gaston. The first clue that I had that this takes place in our world is when Mouse is introduced to Goliath and he's being taken to get a drink of water and goes, all right, big fella, let me tell you a story about a little guy named David. <laughs> I'm like, okay. Gotcha. And then they also make reference later to the Pope. All right, it's on Earth. All right. Another question. Does this film contain anything that has advanced film craft? Not really, no. Other than it's a fairly... Technically well-made fantasy film, which there aren't a lot of examples of. I don't think it really did much to establish fantasy as a viable genre in Hollywood. One thing that I'll say is that I, I don't know that it's necessarily an advancement of film craft, but I would say that it's at least distinct in how it uses the genre. Mm -hmm. Most fantasy films are in a flat-out mythical world, and as soon as we, the audience finds out that there's a curse, and we piece it together before... Uh, Gaston did. At that point, we would have sent, been sent directly out to find a wizard who has a gather quest, and you've got to gain another ally, and then you've got to get all of these items to arrive just at the right moment for the eclipse so that, spoiler alert, you can break the curse. The only fantastical element in this film was the curse. Everything else has a very, or at least aims for a very real-world feel. Mm -hmm. And so I would say that this film leans very, very heavily towards the fairy tale end of the spectrum as we're living in this from not the magical end of fairy tales. We're not looking for the fairy godmother. All of the magic has happened before our every man ever gets on screen. Mm -hmm. And I think that's at least distinct in how it tells a story in a fantasy world. It's also got the advantage... Uh, that there was no attempt to add any extra comical characters that are designed to appeal to children. 
this was a movie for adults and it yes it's a fantasy but that doesn't necessarily mean that it was given the silliness that characterizes a lot of the other other films in that genre yep in particular the character who you could be described to as the wizard who is there to fix the problem he's not so much a wizard as he's shown to be comical and humorous at first but then you find out that this was the priest who unknowingly betrayed the two lovers and caused their curse to fall upon them in the first place. And that adds think... a sense of tragedy and a, a desire for redemption that felt very real. Yeah, but I really think that Imperius is the most interesting character on the screen. Agreed. Mm-hmm. I think so, too. As far as what is noteworthy about this film is how well acted and how, how well these actors portrayed their characters. I mean, Imperius as the old monk who is a little bit batty, living in a ruined castle will do that to you after a while. <laughs> but here's a man who cares for these people. He wants them to be happy, not just so that they will have their love fulfilled, so that he too, as he sees it, will finally have forgiveness, so that his sin will finally be redeemed. We have Philippe Gaston, a young thief. I mean, he just he says so at one point that I'm I'm a thief. I'm not a warrior. I'm not a great person. I don't have any honor. I am what I am. And that's exactly who he plays. Now, true, he turns more noble towards the end because he comes to care about Isabeau and Navarre. And for those two, I like Rutger Hauer. I like him a lot. And to watch him play a somewhat more heroic character than he usually gets to play, because he's usually cast as a villain. Just a year before this movie came out, he was the the rebellious replicant, Roy Batty. A little more alliteration. <laughs> in Very recently, he was Kingsley in Gallivant, who was yes. a dastardly king. If you look through his movie credits, he has played a bad guy more often than not. But here, he's a former captain of the guard. He's a man who is loved deeply and had that love taken from him. And he's tortured by it because there is his love on his arm every single day. And he's forced to be with her, but apart from her. You can see that he carries that tortured element with the character very well. And Michelle Pfeiffer, she was just fun to watch. She was playful at times, but also carried a melancholiness to her performance that I thought fit in perfectly with the character. I think this is where they spent a lot more time developing Rutger Howard's character than they did developing Isabeau. Mm-hmm. Isabel is many times robbed of having any agency. As soon as they tell Navarre, here's how we break the curse, he says, I don't want to hear any more about it. This is foolishness, and I forbid you to tell Isabel. And so she does not even get a say. She gets, she's not even informed of what's dragging her towards the space. And so it's a movie of its time. In that regard, I'm not surprised that they've taken Michelle Pfeiffer's character and, and stripped agency. I've read and heard some some attempts of commentary that, you know, no, she's a strong figure. She goes out and she tries to pursue that huntsman and she tries to do him in. And, you know, really, what does she do? She gets into a, a mild conflict. And when he's distracted, she kicks him and he accidentally falls face first into a bear trap or wolf trap or some other steel trap and mysteriously dies. You know, she's a plot element. She's the love interest. And I think the fact that we have a lot more screen time with Rutger Howard 
I think, emphasizes that. On the other hand, she was the person who came up with the plan. I didn't really understand the plan of trapping the wolf because as soon as the sun comes up, he's not a wolf anymore. So I don't know what the point of the wolf trap was, but that was her plan. As soon as she Fair. learned what the that the curse could be broken, she did try to do something about it, even if ultimately her desires were completely overridden by Navarre's. Well, if a cage will hold a wolf, it'll hold a guy. <laughs> I mean, can't you picture him being naked in a cage, a blanket over it, and him yelling at Mouse and Matthew Broderick with the same tone as what he said before is, I get my commands directly from Isabeau. She and I speak as one, and you are to obey my commands. <laughs> well, that sounds great. I, I also remember some point in the film, like, oh, and if I fail in my mission, kill Isabeau. She, she wouldn't yeah, want to live yeah. the tortured half-life. Like, wait, wait, she wouldn't want? I mean, wait, is she Why don't you ask her? Scene? Like, all you got to do is, like, wait, like, I don't know, eight hours at most, and like, hey, Isabeau, do you want to live like this? Yes, I want to live. It's sad he's dead, but I want to be a bird, even if that's a... No, yeah. I'm sorry. And that really made me think, Navarre is not a heroic guy. I mean, his no. his attitude toward her is chilling, and he's no better than the bishop, whose idea was, if she can't have me, then she might as well be dead. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's not a hero. Yeah. Once again, it comes back to what you said, Mike, about this being a movie of its time. Because this is her as a woman being rather objectified. I think one reason that they decided to give her fewer scenes is the fact that uh, because this was a fantasy movie, 1980s, she is also given the element of the damsel in distress. The noble woman who turns into a hawk by day and a beautiful woman at night. Because everyone goes on at length about, even though they aren't Rutger Hauer, that they've fallen in love with her. With that, beyond her beauty, beyond her great spirit and nature, by giving her fewer scenes, they've also added mystery to her. I think that's one thing they were trying to portray. I mean, you look at that in the first time that you see her as a human. She's wrapped up in a cloak and has her face partially hidden. And that's the scene that they slapped on the posters for this movie. I will yeah, I just... totally give you the mystique. I will totally give you that. And the fewer scenes adding to the mystique, that'll also now, give you. I'm not justifying but, it. I'm saying that that could have been one possible reason. I think that would be a perfectly understandable reason. But when you talk about the damsel in distress, the most distressed she's ever been put in is when the hero orders her death. Mm -hmm. And Imperius is going along with it. That is that is cold, even by 1980 standards. No, you're right there. You are right. Even by 1950 standards. You know what? Even even by 1350s standards, <laughs> that is cold. I've known a couple of women who are of this sort of to know her is to love her, as they describe Isabeau. And the first time through watching it, I was like, I really don't see it. She's She's kind of a sad sack. She just gets dragged along behind everybody. But there are a few glimmers, and I think it's entirely... Pfeiffer's acting ability that shows that kind of magnetism lurking under the surface, mm -hmm. underneath her sorrow, particularly in the, the scene in the stable. Yeah, I did like that. It yeah. was so small, but the scene where she's put on her dress that Mouse has gotten for her, and she walks over to where the horse is tied up, and she reaches over, caresses him, and calls his name Goliath, and gives him a little peck on the cheek. And I think that shows that she does have that kind of lust for life, that kind of exuberance that you associate with that kind of person. And I just wish that there had been 
more opportunity for her to show it. Huh. Alfred Molina played Cesar the Wolf Trapper. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that surprised me, too. I knew I recognized the face and the voice, but I'm like, where do I know okay. him? Um, we haven't I said very have... much. Sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. We haven't said very much about Mouse. Uh, yeah, and there was one thing that the viewpoint character to whom things can be explained, I thought it was kind of funny to to put him in that role and then have nobody ever explain anything to him ever. Right. <laughs> yeah. The viewer was, was finding this out before he was. The note that I have about Philippe Gaston, taking especially from his experiences, escaping from prison, his talking to the camera slash God, and announcing his misdeeds in a public tavern. Um, no one falls like Gaston, breaks forth walls like Gaston. Nobody makes poor judgment calls like Gaston. That's what I've got. I thought it would have been... They made a kind of a big deal of his uh, acrobatics, his agility at the beginning of the movie, and I kind of wish that that had played a little bit more at the very end. Because the fight scene in the church, while, you know, riding in on the horses was cool, it got kind of monotonous after that. I, I really wanted, like, some cutaways to Philippe having to do something like crawling up into the, into the belfry or something in order to be able to deliver the sword, which, you know, he delivered the sword and then everybody ignored it for about 10 minutes. Um, mm-hmm. And I thought it was a little bit of a shame that uh, his agility didn't play into the, the ending scenes. We're coming towards the end of my note. Mm-hmm. Uh, the only other thing about characters that I have, and this might have been better when we were talking about Navarre's ordering Isabeau's death, uh, so I think my note says, uh, in fact, you show such little empathy, I doubt you could pass a Voigt-Kampf test. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Yeah, and yeah. in a lot of ways, uh, Roy Batty was actually a lot more empathetic than Navarre. Uh Yeah. The only other character that I want to touch on before we move on is that of the villainous bishop of Aquila. Ah, yes. I mean, he's really evil because we said so. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and if you call upon the powers of darkness to put a curse on the woman who scorned you and the man she loves, I think that pushes your alignment far enough into the evil chart. Yes, but we don't get to see him do any of that stuff. We're just told about it by Imperius. The worst that the bishop actually did through most of the movie was talk menacingly. Honestly, he didn't even do that great a job. Yeah. <laughs> he did brandish a uh, a very pointy staff, which I thought would come in later in the film. But, you know, it's there to show ready to pierce a dude if he needs to. And then <laughs> didn't. He needed to. If you want to talk talking menacingly, like appropriately we need to go back to the 1982 movie ivanhoe oh no no i haven't seen that in a long time the templar grand master is played fantastically by christopher lee and one of the only scenes i remember from this movie is the templars praying in a church outside a storm is raging a man comes in and says i'm sorry my lord we can't set sail yet the seas are too rough. I don't know how long it will be until we... And before he can finish his sentence, Christopher Lee turns around to him, points to the ground, and says, Pray. And I found myself halfway to the ground. <laughs> like, yes, sir. That is how you talk menacingly. But anyway, yeah. back to the character of the bishop. I'm really tired of the trope that the priest 
the bishop, the pastor, whomever, as soon as you see them, you know that's the bad guy. Speaking as an ordained clergy person, isn't that true? (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Um, No, I mean, though, in... In this context, like, yes, I mean, there is a tired trope of it's the sinister minister. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, in, in this context, it is it is somebody occupying a place of opulence and enjoying a place of power where he is above. I mean, I, I don't know exactly how in this movie we justify the bishop having soldiers and, you know, an armed guard. I mean... Yeah, the Pope at one point in history actually had troops to command, but I don't think that the bishops had had individual troops. But it doesn't matter. I mean, that's, this isn't history. It's fantasy. And it this is just an easy place to point. I mean, a bishop, a king, a lord, it's the same caricature. Well, and it may have been a dual office like Cardinal Richelieu, who was both the cardinal mm-hmm. and also the prime minister of France. Okay. Now, the 1990s Three Musketeers, Cardinal Richelieu, that is an excellent example <laughs> of how to talk menacingly. Uh, Tim Curry is awesome. Yes. Well, gentlemen, unless there are any other characters we want to discuss or any other specific points, do we want to head into final thoughts? I do have one final thought, and that is an element in this movie. It, in a number of ways, it could have been used better, but at least there was something that is a bit refreshing that Hollywood has a hard time with. And that is when there's a love interest. They have a hard time creating any sense of longing with characters, that it's hard to create circumstances where the audience wants two people to be together and being able to contrive a reason of why these two people shouldn't be together. Because if they like each other, obviously they should be together. And love stories typically try to manufacture this by introducing them then breaking them apart so that the audience feels like they've lost something and then getting them back together. A really amazing film like Your Name finds a way to create longing and then try to get these people to meet. This has an opportunity to create a sense of, oh, I really want these people to be together, but there's a very good reason why they can't. And that's because they're different animals depending on the type of day. I thought that was a really clever idea. I wish it would have come across better, but I still have to give merit to the idea. For myself, we've done a lot of nitpicking on this movie, from the cinematography to the characterization uh, to character choices and much more. But this movie has an undeniable charm, and whether it is the combination of the beautiful scenery, the, I think, excellent portrayals of the characters by the actors to the storyline and it's a storyline that is easy to follow and i will explain how i know that because i let my daughter watch a little bit of it with me and she asked me what it is about i told her well it's a love story where a man and a woman are in love but an evil man put a curse on them to where the man is a wolf by night and the woman is a hawk during the day and she understood it immediately and i realized that is an excellent test to whether a movie's plot line is too convoluted or not. Try to explain it to a six-year-old. <laughs> so nitpicking aside, it's easy to see why this movie is the cult classic that it is. It is enjoyable. My only real major gripe with it was the music. And thankfully, the synth-pop Alan Parsons-esque <laughs> concert bits were kept to a minimum. 
And I think if the soundtrack had just been changed up a bit, in my opinion, this movie's rewatchability would have shot up tremendously. Yeah, I'd say it's not an awful movie. It's not great. You know, it's it's no Blade Runner, but at least it's not Highlander. <laughs> Wait, Highlander 1, 2, 3, or 4? Take your pick. <laughs> <laughs> I purchased this DVD off of eBay, and I would sell it to any of our listeners at a loss. Wow. <laughs> no, not I... that bad. I don't, I, I don't begrudge the time watching it. Uh, I thought that it was an interesting concept. I fully appreciate why people love it, those who do. I'm trying to imagine when I'll be revisiting this film, and it'll probably be if there was a friend who really wanted to watch it with somebody. I would probably rewatch it when I watched Dragon Slayer or another film of, of that ilk. Yeah, 10, 12 years from now, right? Yeah. <laughs> All right, I think that wraps it up, does it not? I believe that it does. So that will wrap up our Fantasy Movie Film Club. As we discussed before, everyone, the next that we will be doing will be an animated movie film club. So far, we have one animated movie, which is locked in. The Secret of Nim. Yeah, we've got The Secret of Nim locked in as one choice, but we have two others. And what do you guys think? Do we want to decide those on our own, or do we want to open it up to our listeners to make suggestions? If any of our listeners want us to cover something and they find that an animated film is important, we have really no rules about what we're accepting. So pitch it to us and hope to hear from you. And on that note, we're going to head to the zombie apocalypse plan of the week. Yeah, this week what we're doing is we are looking at assembling a zombie survivalist team. And actually, I'm looking especially to members of the SCA because I suspect that there are some very special skills that will help us in a survival scenario. James, you're an SCA member. Can you tell us what special skills you think you're going to bring to this zombie survival that you've acquired in the SCA? Stabbing things in the head. Ooh, yeah, this is awkward. Sorry, James. Uh, We've got a lot of fighters already and what we're really looking for is people who know how to weave cloth and stitch clothing and the like. I mean, yeah, uh, gotcha. you, yeah, you can have you have to have a team that knows how to fight. We, we got that. We got lots of that. But you can also freeze to death if you don't have weavers. I'll be honest. I never knew that my survival in the zombie apocalypse depended on taking that basket weaving class at King's College. Who knew? Yeah. Yeah, arts and sciences, really. I mean, if you've got to rebuild society, you, you can't just know how to hit stuff. That'll only get you so far. In all honesty, though, I do also bring woodworking, some very small amount of blacksmithing. and yeah, The joinery on that palisade is going to be top-notch. That's right. And one class in tablet weaving that I took like six years ago. I- I'm sorry, James. The-, the application process is closed. Oh, bummer. Oh, well. I'm going to go start my own SCA then. (laughs) Honestly, I'm going to tell you right now, there probably are a lot of SCA members who are thinking, you just wait. You just wait, world. When the zombie apocalypse hits, we're going to be on top. (laughs) We're going to be the ones with all the mead. Mm -hmm. One thing that should be noted is that when you take into account all the members of the society... And you think about how many of them take part in some form of combat, whether that is chivalric combat, 
rapier, or cut and thrust. Add it up. They make up the world's second largest private army. (laughs) I believe that was a major plot point of uh, S.M. Sterling's Dies the Fire series. It was. We're right behind the Boy Scouts of America. (laughs) But in a fight, I think we could take them. Well, (laughs) let me amend that. As long as they don't have a lot of prep time. (laughs) Well, they're always prepared, James. That's true. That is true. Well, that will wrap it up for us this episode. I want to thank you all for listening in. Make sure you check us out online at geekatarms.com, facebook.com slash geekatarms. And, Mike, what's our Twitter handle? We are at ArmsGeek because we love arms and armor. And if you subscribe to us through either iTunes or Google Play, please leave us a review. It raises podcast awareness, and it lets us know how we're doing. And finally, from Brian, Mike, and James... Be safe, be blessed, and be geeky. Thanks for listening to Geek at Arms. Music for this podcast was provided by Incompetech.com. For more, check us out at Facebook.com forward slash Geek at Arms. Give us a like and maybe even subscribe to us on iTunes. That would be awesome. Boop, 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 boop,